Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear the CEO of the Business Council of Canada, two former Liberal members of Parliament who urged Canadians to vote Conservative and what they think of Andrew Scheer and the way he handled the campaign and what they think of Justin Trudeau. Professor Stephen Pine is a world expert on wildfires. He says we're in for quite the time with wildfires. Donald Trump, well, how's he doing as far as the investigation is concerned that's run by the Democrats? We'll talk to pollster John Zogby about that, about impeachment, and Scott Newark on a story about an Ottawa judge who decided not to send two sex traffickers to jail. The economy, our economy, this country's economy, where we stand, where we're going, how significantly important it is to drive it forward, how significantly important it is for the economy to be positive, for us to be able to afford all the things that we enjoy. The Business Council of Canada, after nine months of study, earlier in the week released its report and recommendations of its CEO-led National Task Force on Canada's Economic Future. The BCOC released, quote, actual plan for growing our economy so we can continue to afford the quality of life and social programs we have come to cherish, end quote. Goldie Hyder is the president and CEO of the BCOC. And uh, by the way, the companies the BCOC represents employ some 1.7 million people in this country. Mr. Hyder joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Good to have you back with us, Mr. Hyder. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. So what went into the BCOC economic plan over the nine months? What did you study? Well, Roy, I mean, as this last election just, uh, you know, uh, proved to people around the country that, you know, we've uh, gotten away from what got us to be where we are, which was uh, the importance of focusing on the economy and making sure that there is an opportunity for it to be as inclusive as possible and to share that um, that wealth, which comes from having a strategy and having a plan. And uh, we witnessed in this election, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, maybe we were foreshadowing what was to come when we started our process in January, but every political party uh, effectively had a redistribution strategy. Uh, we're just going to keep taking, we're going to keep borrowing, and somehow uh, you know, we're going to try and make everybody's life better. And the evidence is quite clear that that's just not how you go about doing it. And uh, we went about uh, as leaders of, as you mentioned, 1.7 million uh, employees. But I, I use a multiple of three to four of that because you have to consider this small, medium enterprise supply chain that, that really exists uh, in part because uh, big business is here as well. And so we uh, worked very hard to do some outreach. Uh, this is not uh, some CEOs coming from the, the mountaintop with the tablets. Uh, we went out across the country, engaged Canadians and engaged uh, stakeholders and shareholders, as well as um, the importance of hearing from the Indigenous uh, communities as well, to say, look, we've got a country here that we've got to build, and we've got to make sure that it can compete uh, in what is a rapidly changing world. And that's the outcome of uh, this process that just concluded this week. I want to talk to you about that in, in, some, in some detail, but uh, let me ask you this question, since we're talking about political involvement in, uh, in the economy and we did hear all the political parties talk about in various formats it was um, make them pay their fair share. And we know who they are. They are the rich. And I think the, the NDP set the number at $20 million. And this was pointed out to me by a business leader in this country. Even if you run a fairly small company, medium, small to medium-sized company, once you put together all of your assets and all of the all of the assets that you have to run the company, you can easily reach $20 million. Real estate is, is a major factor in that. So when we, when we take all of this into consideration and we look at the politicians and the political parties, is politics a help or a hindrance to the creation and maintenance of a pragmatic plan to guide our economy going forward? 
Well, in the good old days, uh, when there wasn't social media and a, a lot of polling going on every single day, I think political people had the best of intentions to do exactly what you just said. Through no fault of their own, I think we found ourselves in a scenario now, in part, as I mentioned, because of social media and other things, where governments have largely become movements. Political parties have become movements, and mm-hmm. they're getting further and further away from that um, center where most Canadians are. I think we're a very pragmatic, centrist uh, group of people on our social policy, on our economic policy. And as our politics gets more and more polarized, there's this great big vacuum um, in the middle. And I'm particularly concerned that our politics has turned into really pitting, Cana- pitting Canadians against Canadians, this whole class welfare, this rhetoric around you know, the so-called middle class. I'm like, well, I suspect every room I go into, if you ask people, who do you think is middle class, everybody's hands would go up. And I'll bet you most of them wouldn't be middle class. And so we've got to get away from that. We've got to get away... I think the core issue here, Roy, is culture, and I know that you've got a sophisticated audience and they'll have their point of view, but my view is Canada's a country born on third and thinks it hit a triple. You know, we, we are so blessed to be where we are and have what we have from both a natural resources perspective and a human resources perspective. 75 years the British took care of us, 75 years the Americans have taken care of us, but the world is a rapidly changing place. I get the chance to travel and hear so much and see so much, and, and what I'm finding is we're falling behind, and part of the reason is the rhetoric that you just raised. We, we are into... To, you know, punishing the successful. How dare you start a business and, and get it to grow? My wife likes to say, isn't the goal of every small, medium enterprise to become a big business? What are you saying to them if we're going to constantly have the rhetoric that we do for the people who create the wealth, who create the jobs, who create the, tax, uh, the taxes that allow us to have those social programs that we all cherish? So I think Canadians have to look in the mirror here. We want to blame a lot of other people. We are responsible for this, not just our politics, but we as Canadians need to look at ourselves and say, what do we need to do to compete in the new world, and mm-hmm. where is it that we're holding ourselves back and being able to do so? You use the word pra- pragmatic. I think what unfortunately has happened over time, let's say the last 20 years, is that the fact that politicians should be pragmatists once they get in office. Fight the election campaigns tooth and nail. Do whatever you need to do to get your ideas across and to get Canadians to vote for you. But once you're in power, pragmatism is the key because that is how you serve the people you must serve. That's your job. That's the job you have to do. So uh, once I've got that out of the way, the Business Council of Canada, your, the recommendations that you brought forward in the report last week, uh, there are six of them. Could you just walk us through them, please, Mr. Sure. Hunter? Well, look, one of the things we wanted to do was make sure that we weren't trying to boil an ocean here. Uh, I think we know that Canadian public policy is one that's often been done incrementally. We don't think that's sufficient, but we do think we can bring focus to what are the fundamentals of an economy. And in no particular order here, but skills and talent. I mean, of all the things that our CEOs are focused on, it is about labor. And that captures the issues of skills, retraining, getting ready for the new economy, and, of course, the issue of attracting the right, uh, right uh, immigrants to come here and be successful uh, in, our, in our economy. Another issue which, um, you know, is near and dear to my heart because as an Albertan, this is very important to me, but trying to reconcile our energy, environment, and infrastructure issues. We have got to be able to figure that out because there's a reason we have all these resources. I'm convinced it's because the Almighty thought we'd be the ones who are most well-positioned to share them responsibly within ourselves, but more importantly, also around the world. And yet we all know what we've done on those issues. And I think Canadians are much smarter than that. And I know that they would, they would agree that using our, our, our resources wisely and responsibly is something that government should make sure is possible. And the third one is innovation and new economy. This is trying to speak to the the changes that are taking place. Let's face it, Canadians are not immune from what's going on around the world. Technology, the pace at which it's uh, which it's occurring, uh, the, uh, the 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 rise of you know robotics and artificial intelligence. You know, the answer to the question people want is, you know, why is my 28 year old back at home now, <laughs> living in my basement? Mm-hmm. And and we've got to make sure that they're ready for that that new world. And, and innovation is and new economy is core to that. Uh, now, the next two I know will, you know, people will say, oh, there they go. They snuck in those two usual things. But the next two are taxes and regulations. And we have to recognize that taxes and regulations are to an economy what flour and sugar is to cake. They are the core ingredients that are necessary to be able to grow your economy. If you get those wrong and others get it right, money and, and people move. 
And it's not about more taxes or less taxes or more regulations or less regulations. It's about efficiency. It's about smart, being smart about it and knowing that, you know, you're competing. Countries compete just as hard as businesses do. And so we've got to look at those two as well. And we haven't looked at tax reform since uh, our current finance minister was born. That's a little long considering all that's happened over the last 50 plus years. And then the last one is Canada's place in the world. Uh, you know, the world is changing at a pace in which we've never seen before. You know, as I said earlier, we've been blessed for 150 years with one country or another taking care of us, but we're very alone now. And we have to figure out how to navigate a complicated world with you know, trade wars, with tariff wars, with, you know, uh, the rise of uh, populism around the world. What is Canada to do and how are we going to be uh, influential in that world, which I know Canadians take great pride in? I want to ask you, I have to take a break, but I want to ask you about the issue of uh, Canadian businesses remaining within our borders. We know the Ancana story from earlier this week. It's made headlines everywhere. You've spoken about that. But there are also the questions about individual businesses, individual business owners who've made the decision because of taxes, because of uh, quite often regulations and other obstacles that are placed in the, placed before them because I don't think we value entrepreneurship the way we're used to or the way we ought to. I want to ask you about that. I'll be speaking tomorrow on this program with a Canadian business owner who has decided to move to the United States. Last weekend, we spoke with a, with a, with a Texas realtor, one realtor, one realtor in the state of Texas who's helped 100 Canadian companies in the last 10 years to move to the United States and told us, based on contact he's had from Canadian businesses in the first week after the election, he projects another 100 Canadian businesses in the next 12 months. One realtor, one person in Texas. Now, before I get to all of that, I want to just go back to what you were talking about a moment ago, Mr. Hyder, and, and that is, where does this where does the uh, the dynamic of the aging population fit into the into the six point program that you came up with? Well, it's in the very first uh, topic around skills and talent. As I mentioned, we have got to ensure that uh, Canada does not fall prey. And if there's a compliment I would like to give our political leaders, uh, five out of six, I guess, uh, in terms of this last election, no one took the bait of taking us to a dark corner on immigration because I think there's a universally held recognition that you know Canada is a country of immigrants. Immigrants have been key to our economy. Uh, and that despite the fact that in other countries, you know, that issue has been uh, ripping societies apart. I'm very pleased that we didn't do that to ourselves here, because when all is said and done, you know, if business can't find the talent, it will have to go somewhere else. And so I'm really pleased that, uh, you know, we, we dodged that bullet in this election. Mr. Hyder, we touched on, and I'd like your thoughts on businesses and business owners who've made the decision that they can no longer viably stay in this country and they decide to move. I've heard some troubling stories. I mentioned them about just one real estate agent in Texas, and tomorrow I'll be speaking with a Canadian business owner who's made the decision to move to the United States. Would you speak to that, please? Well, let me first say that uh, you know my, myself and my members are in, in, you know very very proud Canadians, and the frustrations that we're facing is. We are conflicted, right? You're proud of your, of your country. You want to stay in your country. You want to be able to live and work and play at the same place. But the reality is when you have your, you know, your CEO hat on or your business owner hat on as a small business or a large business, you have an obligation. You have an obligation to your employees, your customers, your shareholders, your community to, to be a viable business. And it is, uh, I suspect, the last resort for most companies to start thinking about leaving the country because it is a, not an easy decision to make. But there's an old saying in politics that I think applies to business as much as anything else, which is money follows message. And say what you will about Mr. Trump, and there's a lot to say, I'm sure. But when it comes to the basics of an economic plan, he cut taxes, deregulated, uh, repatriated profits, uh, really an attitudinal change. So it's more than slogans. You know, these aren't open for business slogans. There's actual substance behind it. And as I said, money follows message. And when it comes to capital, uh, it is somewhat agnostic on nationality. It is agnostic on values. It has basically got an obligation to go to where it can get the best return. And so I'm sorry to hear of those, including your guests tomorrow, who are thinking of doing that because I recognize it's not what they want to be doing. And that's one of our messages at the Business Council. It doesn't have to be this way. These are things that are in our control, in our destiny. And we need to uh, really you know, um, focus on an economic plan. And we encourage Canadians to participate through our website. Uh, it's about Canada. 
www.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca
I certainly thought there was going to be uh, a conservative victory, uh, but I obviously they had fallen short uh, just on the numbers alone and the way the seat distribution. Uh, and so for that reason, I, I think uh, there's no doubt many uh, felt that this would have been an easy thing, uh, an easy objective. Uh, I think, you know, a bit of perspective, and I, I'm not one who has been a card-carrying conservative, uh, and I know conservatives, to a less extent liberals, uh, can be really harsh on their uh, on their leaders. They've got a tradition of, uh, of going after them. But, I mean, this is going to be a very tough decision for the Conservative Party because it has to deal with uh, a leader who almost made it, but it almost doesn't count, except, uh, I think, in uh, playing horseshoes uh, or grenade tossing, as they say. Um, the reality is that uh, he's going to have to spend the next several months uh, fending off uh, a leadership uh, challenge. And uh, in terms of the campaign itself, um, the area where I thought he was strongest was also the area where I think he turned out to be weakest. And that has nothing to do with the uh, the virtuous social issues, the ones that uh, the Liberals kept bringing up when they weren't talking about Jason Kenney or Doug Ford. And that was affordability, because I think there was a golden opportunity there. Uh, it's it's It was out there. People are very concerned about mm-hmm. the ability to make ends meet. And certainly the Liberal approach, along now with an emboldened opposition, to increase prices for energy, uh, carbon taxes, clean fuel standards, and the like, is going to make life a lot less affordable and far more challenging for okay. most people out there. So, Michelle, let's uh, again let's have a look at uh, Mr. Shear's performance during the campaign and the disappointment in them finishing second. There was no reason for this party to finish second, and and I know some of Mr. Shear's associates are going to be mad as hell at me. Uh, for saying what I'm saying, but that's what a lot of people are saying in this country, particularly those with a philosophical conservative persuasion, which I have, which is not going to surprise anybody. Um, Do do you think that Andrew Scheer deserves the blame, because he's the leader, does he deserve the blame, if blame is going to be assigned, for them not winning the election? Well, I think he has to accept responsibility for it. I'm, I'm not convinced, though, that he should go right now. I, I really don't. I think if they try to change leaders, um, that uh, they're going to call a snap election, the Liberals will, and get them with their drawers down. So if they had an, uh, if they call an election within six to eight months, because we're, I think most people are saying it'll be two years before there's an election on this minority government. That's the guess, sort of based on, on the past. Um, but if they if they have a leadership convention and they come up with a well-known name, somebody who's familiar to Canadians, um, is that is that the smart Dan? Is that the, is that what you would do? Can you go into the next election with Andrew Shear leading the party based on what you saw this time? Uh, probably, but again, I'm not I'm not an expert in that party. I do know what your gut tell you. You're the you're you're a veteran the politician. Gut, the gut tells me he's had one kick of the can, and uh, it wasn't a very good one. Considering, uh, on the other hand, uh, whoever you come forward with is going to fa- be confronted and faced with the same issues, and they you know they're going to dig up stuff on them. And of course, you lose sight of what we ought to have been doing in the campaign, and that's to focus on the rather pathetic, I would rate it as disgusting, record of the Trudeau government. It was all there. It was all right in front of them. They had every opportunity to just roll it out. And and, and a position that I've taken uh, leading into this is the Conservatives should have done this before the election campaign even got started. They should have established the boundaries, the parameters, and said, this is what we're going to talk about. This is where our interests are. I don't care where you try to take us, media or anybody else, the Liberals or the NDP. This is our focus, and allow Canadians to understand what the party's focus is and stayed within those boundaries come hell or high water. Yeah, Canadians need to know that they're in big trouble in this country, and it's under the leadership yeah. of this government. That's something Conservatives could have done, and it's certainly, uh, if you're going to say it, that all things lead to the leader, then that's where it goes. But beyond affordability, it's uh, the lack of investment. Look at the number of companies that are basically saying we're pulling stakes, we're getting the heck out of Canada. This is yeah. a very scary situation. We're going to be talking. We we're going to be talking that. with a Canadian who's moving his business out of Canada tomorrow. Oh my goodness! On this program, last Sunday uh, we spoke with a Texas realtor who told us this is just one realtor in Texas who's helped a hundred companies over the last ten years, Canadian companies, to move to Texas. And he, based on the information and the calls and the interest he's received, uh, received on the first week after the election, says he's expecting another hundred companies in the next twelve months. One realtor, wow. one realtor in Texas. Let me pick myself off the floor here. Um, it's it's happening far more than I think many want to admit. Yeah. 
And we live in a bubble, perhaps a media bubble, and that's going to be a challenge for anybody who wants okay. to take over the leadership of this party. Michelle, let me ask you, uh, give you another 30 seconds here to sh- share with me your answer to my question about what if, would you be, uh, do you think it would make sense for the Conservatives to introduce a new leader of the party to the to, to Canadians within six to eight months, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll talk about the likelihood, if there is a likelihood, of Mr. Trudeau returning as leader of the Liberal Party, because they've changed leaders, as you as you know better than I do, five yeah. times in the, since 2004. Yeah, exactly. And I think that Trudeau is so bitterly disappointed that he didn't get his majority again, because that's the nature of him, the, the nature of the beast. He is a really sore loser, and he sees this as a loss because, he, you know, um, he isn't the golden boy anymore. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Do you think that if it were in the next six to eight months that the Conservatives were to introduce a leader of the party, uh, that that would be, that would be a, um, a, a, a good move strategically? Well, I, I'm not convinced. It depends on who mm-hmm. they're going to replace him with. Okay. Like a Lisa Rate maybe, um, and uh, Peter McKay maybe, but you never know who's waiting. You never know who's available. That's right. You never ever know, and we know that the, there's been talk uh, over the last year about the Liberals being interested in 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 Mr. Carney, who's the governor of the Bank of uh, of England now, was the governor of Bank of Canada, but now he has an issue because he has three citizenships. Anyhow. Yeah. Uh, so, Michelle, you sat with Mr. Trudeau for a number of years during question period. You've told us that he has a, a great affection for himself. Oh, yes. Right. Okay. So he's not taking any blame for what happened on October the 21st, I take I, it. I don't, I don't believe he would. Okay. He would blame the rest of the team. Do you see, and you both know the Liberal Party inside out, outside in, uh, and again, five leaders since 2003, since Gretchen left. I don't, not even counting, I don't know if I'm counting Gretchen or not, could be. Um, it's easily and quickly enough done. Is there, would there be the kind of movement within the party that says, hey, we were down to 34 seats not so long ago. We don't want to go there again. Uh, Mr. Trudeau has a lot of skeletons in his closet that are now visible. Who knows what else may be there that isn't yet visible? Do you think there's the kind of thinking in the Liberal Party that, among some, that we have to find something else for this man and find ourselves another leader, like maybe somebody like Mark Carney? I don't think so, um, Roy. I, I think right now uh, those are there, just grateful and thankful that they're there. Those who've lost may very well find themselves uh, uh, perhaps uh, given a sinecure, uh, something that allow them to tie themselves over. Uh, but for the Liberals... Uh, Many of them are just breathing a major sigh of relief uh, that they actually pulled this one off, uh, albeit that's really, uh, you know, a very false uh, and short-term thing. Wait till the parliamentary committees come back and have the ability to really pry open the Mark Norman, the SNC-Lavalin. Yeah, because because uh, Jody Wilson-Maybold is back, and she's not going to let that SNC thing disappear. Absolutely. And so this is a very different game. I think right now, for the next month until... Uh, Trudeau cobbles together another cabinet and uh, has the nerve to call back uh, Parliament. He has to do it, but by the time that rolls around, it'll be Christmas. So we may not really see things uh, picking up until February. Between now and February, maybe attention will be on Sheer. After February, all attention back on Trudeau. And that's yeah. where, uh, if there are scandalous things to come out uh, and they do get caught, then uh, I think uh, you're looking potentially at some Liberals finding spine finally. All right, Michelle, your knowledge of the party, your understanding of the situation, your best guesstimate, if you will. No, not guess, no, best, best guess, uh, educated guess. Is there, do you think there's a cadre within the Liberal Party of Canada that says we can't go into the next election with Mr. Trudeau leading us? I don't, I agree with Dan. I don't think it's there. Um, th- there's too much at stake. And when you're in opposition, it's different. And that's what happened to um, Ignatieff and we were in opposition, but when you are, even if it's minority, part of the government, the rest of your team counts on, like, they're not going to step out of line because they want to be 
ministers, parliamentary secretaries, because there's money in that. Um, They'll sink with the ship, basically, is what it comes down to. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think there's uh, every, uh, no, this is one shot. Um, it took us, what, four elect- three elections to uh, push the Liberals out and get the Conservatives in 2000 and, uh, and, and to get them their majority. Uh, we may be looking at several elections. Uh, I'm not one who believes, by the way, Roy, that we're going to be around for two years. This uh, this Parliament will be nasty, brutish, and very short. Oh, yeah. And the Conservatives are the only one who have the money to run a campaign right now, from what I understand. That's right. And if you crack through the GTA, in other words, you restart winning seats in the uh, in the Greater Toronto area, um, it's game over. Uh, you would only need to pick up maybe 10 seats in Toronto, okay. which is entirely possible. So The goal is almost there. My, my, my sense is that, um, that they're going to look at this situation and uh, there will be some in the Liberal Party who will have great concerns about being led by Justin Trudeau. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he somehow finds himself at the United Nations with an unlimited wardrobe budget. However, <laughs> story for another day. Thank you, so, thank you both so much for joining us. Always great talking to you. Uh, oh. I enjoyed it. I know how you both voted, and uh, we'll have lots more to talk about going forward, I'm sure. You're right. See you, Michelle. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, Roy. Michelle Simpson, Dan McTague, both uh, former Liberal members of Parliament. We've all seen the uh, the video of the wildfires in California, and they're terrifying. Just as the videos of the wildfires in Canada, British Columbia, and, of course, the beast which invaded Alberta from Saskatchewan. And uh, remember, the, remember the footage and the, and the destruction in Fort McMurray. So the wildfire issue is one that we're talking about a lot on this continent. And according to my next guest, we live in the Pyrocene age. My guest is Professor Stephen Pine, wildfire authority, emeritus professor at Arizona State University. And the Pyrocene Age of Fire will be as impactful as the Ice Age was, Professor Pine says. Um, He's the author of more than 30 books, mostly on the history and management of wildland and rural fire, including big screen surveys for the United States, Canada, Australia, Europe, and Russia. His new book is Fire, A Brief History, second edition. He's also the author of Awful Splendor, A Fire History of Canada. That's been around for some years, but Professor Pine, great to have you with us. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. So when we when you say pyrocene, <laughs> I, I take the first four letters of that word, and I'm well on my way to understanding, I think, what's coming our way. What are we in for? What is the pyrocene era? Well, I'll tell you how did I come to how did I come to coin the term? I've, I've been concerned, like many people, with global environmental changes and trying to understand it. But I come at it as a fire guy. I'm, I'm basically a fire historian. And I've been listening to people say we have no narrative for what's coming. We have no analog and no analog future. Uh, we can't predict. It, it's too strange. And it, coming at it from fire, I see it a little differently. I, I think we do have a narrative, and it's a very old narrative. It's a story of ourselves and fire. We are the Earth's keystone species for fire. We have a species monopoly over fire. We have always used fire. So that is continuing. And thinking about analogs, when you start adding up all the ways that our fire practices, what we are doing, and what we used to do and have quit doing with with fire on living landscapes and how we're using fossil fuels now, we're creating, in effect, um, something on the on the scale that might be comparable to the ice ages of the Pleistocene. So at that way, I thought at that point, I I, I tried to make the case that we do have a way to understand this. And we do have some some analogies for what might happen. Uh, They're pretty frightening. Uh, Go ahead and frighten us. Well, uh, you know, look, what what happened during the ice age? I mean, Canada, Canada was completely subsumed under the ice. Uh, ice is pretty, is pretty permanent. Uh, it, it destroys life. Uh, so fire is different because it's, it's not a substance. It just doesn't sit there and mound it. It's a reaction. But you start adding up the things that the Ice Age set up in motion, um, extinctions, 
changes in sea level, large areas of land and uh, landscapes, living landscapes, uh, being altered a huge scale. So you have ice, you have uh, lakes, you have periglacial effects without wash plains. Start looking at all this, and I'm thinking, are there are there comparable uh, things emerging? Well, we're really changing a lot of our fire our fire prone landscapes are becoming more fire prone. We're seeing more frequent, in many cases, more savage uh, fires. We also have areas that need fire that aren't getting it. Uh, we, we're looking at an extinction. Uh, mass extinction. We're looking at changes in, in sea level. All of these come back to our our special status as a fire creature. And uh, so that, for me, was a way of trying to encapsulate that. And it's it, it provides an image that people can can latch onto. The other stuff, there are just too many scattered kinds of consequences rattling around. It's hard it's hard to understand it. So, so most I... people don't. I'm don't sorry. get fire, and it, it seems very alien and strange. They yeah. only see it as destructive. I see it as, as sort of integrated in with the world, integrated with human society, and this is a way I can I can make sense out of it. Okay, so when we look at the situation in California, and most of us experience it through a video clip, mm-hmm. when we look at a situation like the beast in uh, in Western Canada, we see the uh, we see the flames, the wall of flames on video. Then we see the after effects of the communities that have been burned. We see that in California as well, and other places where these fires occur. Mm-hmm. And are, are we in for a lot? Do I hear you saying then we're in for a lot more of this? Uh, that's what that's what the forecast seems to be looking at uh, right now. Uh, particularly climate, but also our land use changes and other things are acting as a performance enhancer. They're sort of magnifying and increasing the tempo. I mean, California is built to burn. It's built to burn explosively. If there were no people around, it would still have fires that would burn to the Pacific. Why is that? But Well, it's because you've got a Mediterranean climate over much of the state, so you've got a wet-dry cycle regularly. That's what you need for fire. It needs to be wet enough to grow stuff and dry enough to to, burn it it off. Uh, You have episodic droughts, many of them uh, long duration. Even in the mountains, the Sierra Nevada, you've got regular uh, pattern of, of summer thunderstorms and so forth. All of this is sort of built for fire. You've also got this mountain range running east-west, and it, it then you get these um, cold fronts that park their park themselves on the east side, and that sets up conditions where you get these sort of avalanches of wind that just pour out across the mountains. All this is structural. It's nothing to do with people. And because this has gone on for so long, you have um, basically a, a biota that is adapted to it. Uh, but we've done we've done so many things to to break that up and the sort of the patterns that had come into accommodation we've we've sort of broken and California for a long time has insisted it's going to live as it wants to live in those places it wants to live in despite this and we've for a century now we've put our firefighting uh, system in between that is what's going to buffer between the sort of hammer of fires and sort of the anvil of American society living okay. as we're choosing. Professor Pine, let me reaching the point. Let me ask you to just no, hold on. I, I just have to take a quick break. Sure. My guest is Professor Stephen Pine, Professor Emeritus at the University uh, Arizona State University, and his website is stephenpine.com. His uh, most recent book is Fire: A Brief History, Second Edition. And uh, what I was reading, uh, Professor Pine, in Wired magazine, um, they were writing about fire, and just one or two sentences here. Welcome to what fire historian Steve Pine calls the Pyrocene, a unique time in history when human use of fire, particularly the burning of fossil fuels and the attendant climate change, combine to create hell on earth. We are creating a fire age that will be equivalent to the ice age. I heard you say that, but are we, are we looking at hell on earth? No, that's no. <laughs> nothing I said. That's that's the that's a bit of hyperbole there. Line. Hey, they're 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 you know they're uh, 
Yeah, they're jazzing it up. They're trying to get more hits. Okay. Uh, I know I can't control that. So let me ask no, you then. A... Let me ask you then. You said that we looked at California because that's where the wildfires yeah. are now. So you say California has decided they're going to live the way they want to live. So they have the communities almost abutting onto the fire zones, but they put the firefighters in the middle uh, to separate well, that... the two. Right. So it's not like the referee in the ring. That's awfully tough Except on. The... That... Except that the referee in the ring is not being pummeled by both of the fighters. <laughs> yeah, so that's a rough, is, rough place for firefighters. We're asking those guys and, and women to put themselves in buffer. And up to a certain point, that's legitimate, and they're accepting it. But we're having so much, and it's it's increased uh, the savagery of the fires as such that we can't do that. It's not effective, and we really can't ask them to take those kinds of risk under those conditions. I think the fact so that so normal, many, I'm sorry, so many people were told to leave, evacuate, kind of made that statement, didn't it? That we're, we're doing our best, but we, we, we just can't control this thing. Well, with, 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 you've got winds like that. I mean, mostly what people see are this wall of flame, and then they see the post-burn area, and they assume that it rolls over it like a, a tsunami. Uh, but the communities are mostly taken out by ember storms, just blizzards of sparks. I mean, I think of it as a kind of locust on fire, and they just swarm across at any point of vulnerability they will find. And when you've got that, and you've got fires starting a mile or two ahead, there is no way that you are going to be able to provide coverage and protect those towns. It's just, it's just not possible. So may I ask and you... Part of what's I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm always fighting the clock here. I want to get as many questions yeah. in for you as I can yeah. because this is so important. I hope you'll come back. Um, are we looking at, if you look at the United States and Canada, North America-wide, are both countries, is the entire continent, facing the same problems? Are, they, are, are, are we facing consistent situations in both countries? Well, we're facing, we're facing variants. They're not going to be the same except certain areas along the border. Uh, the northeastern part of the United States, uh, areas like Toronto, the Maritimes, don't have regular wet-dry cycles, at least at this point they don't. So they're going to be relatively immune from a lot of this if they can control their fires and the amount of debris they leave on the landscape that, that can burn. Uh, Western Canada, parts of central Canada, um, much of the United States are going to feel this a lot more. The boreal forest is going to feel it. We're already seeing a lot of the effects in Alaska now. Uh, some of the areas uh, are simply going to become too dry. Uh, perhaps where I live in the southwest, forecast, it may be so dry that we, we don't have enough stuff growing anymore. So we're going to have fires that will roar over it, but we won't be able to regenerate at this, the same kind of thing. I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, and we don't know what actions we're going to take or not take to change the kinds of outcomes we're predicting. I just think that it's going to, fire is going to be central to it. It's not everything, but fire is going to be a cause in some place. It's going to be a consequence, but it's going to be a catalyst too. That's who we are. You know, other animals knock over trees and dig holes in the ground. We do fire, and right now we're not doing a very smart job of it. How much does climate change play into this? Well, right now, as I would, I would, I see it as a performance enhancer. It's, uh, it's aggravating what's already out there. Um, some of the areas in far northern environments, again, Alaska, northern boreal forests in Canada, uh, and elsewhere, seem to be uh, picking up tempo and intensity because of it. Um, it's really hard to sort out. You know, fire. People want to know what's the driver here. What's the cause? Well, fire, fire is a reaction. It's, it's like a driverless car. It's just barreling down the road. It's integrating everything around it. And at some places in time, one factor is going to loom really large, like the winds in California right now. Uh, other times, other things are going to be in. So they're all out there. So it makes it difficult in a sense. We like one thing we can do and fix it. But on the other hand, the fact that there are so many things out there means that there are lots of points of entry. And we can do a lot of little things to correct it. We can certainly keep power lines from starting fires uh, the way okay. they are now. Right. There, there, we can harden our houses so we don't have communities. I mean, there are bunches of things we can do. If it were a real ice age, there's not a lot you're going to be able to do to stop an ice sheet. But fire feeds off the living vegetation, so there are lots of points of interest okay. for us. There are many things I, we can do. I have to stop you there, but I hope you'll come <laughs> back. You're a terrific guest. A lot more to talk about, Professor Pine. Thank you for the time today. 
Well, thank you for the invitation. Have a good one. Great talking to you. StephenPine.com is the website. StephenPine.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-P-Y-N-E.com. John Zogby is the founder of the Zogby Poll. He is the author of We Are Many, We Are One, op-ed writer, speaker. JohnZogbyAnalytics.com is the webpage. Well, I don't know how to follow that, John. I don't either, but I'll try. Thank you. Would you, let's start with this. Would you assess the battle in Congress between the Democrats and the GOP over Trump impeachment? And then part two of the question is, are the Democrats doing anything else other than pursuing Donald Trump? Well, in terms of the assessment between the two parties, we are at the same divide level that we experienced as a country uh, right before the Civil War. Um, there, you know, you may hear some talk about, oh, I play handball, or my good friend here, my good friend there from the opposite side. But when it comes to not only uh, broad, significant policies, but also um, even belief in the Constitution and how our democracy operates, the two sides are at, at polar opposites and there is a, a, a huge border between the two. Um, so, I mean, that's part one of, of your question. But part two was, uh, is anything getting done? Oh, yeah, sure. There, there, there are trade-offs, um, you know, on smaller kinds of policy issues. But the major issues, you know, uh, immigration reform, for example, uh, um, ex- expansion of health care, um, and, and so on. No, not at all, zero. When you said that, uh, when you look at, I think you said that when you look at Congress, you're looking at a situation that is like it was before the Civil War. Are we speaking, I hope we're speaking metaphorically here. I'm not. No, no, there, um, uh, it's beyond disagreement. It is at a point where um, overall, we're talking two different realities. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just heard the president uh, saying this is a conspiracy. Uh, whether or not that's true, I don't think, I don't believe that it is. Uh, on the Democratic side, we're talking crime. Well, crime versus conspiracy, that's a chasm there. Um, and the fact that both sides have, a, you know, an equivalent amount of support for each other, making it pretty difficult for them to be, for there to be, you know, any kind of agreement. Where do we go from here with that? You know, the House is a strong majority now, Democrat. They just voted to formalize their inquiry into impeachment purely on partisan lines. Um, uh, Will they vote for articles of impeachment? Those are constitutional terms. Yes. Democrats believe that. Republicans do not. But there's enough Democrats in the House for that to happen. You go to the Senate, you have the exact opposite. Out of 100 senators, 53 of them are Republicans. Uh, If there is an impeachment with an indictment, there would be a trial in the United States Senate. And... To remove a president from office would take two-thirds, 67 votes. Well, uh, even if there are a few Republican votes you know, that may side with removal of the president, um, there, there, there just cannot be enough uh, to, to remove the president. Uh, Canadians should know that when Donald Trump was campaigning for president, he was talking about his relationship with his base, which is about 42%, 43% steady, unchanging, you know, among the, uh, the electorate. He said, I can shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue in New York City and still keep my base. And actually, that was kind of prophetic. Yeah, I remember that statement. Um, if, if if they vote for, and you say they will, I I don't doubt it. They'll they'll vote for the uh, impeachment trial in, in in the Senate. 
But if they get, there's no chance of of uh, winning that trial and removing Mr. Trump from office, the question then becomes: What's the point? What's the end game? Uh, is there anything to be won by the Democrats doing this, or will it just stop sh- short? Well, well, I heard you say no. Cynical game. Yeah. So, you know, there is maybe on the Democratic side, you know, a scintilla of hope that uh, if it goes to the Senate and the president uh, is hurting the party politically, and, and look, despite the legalities or illegalities, impeachment and re- removal are all about politics. But if the president maintains a, a 40 base overall and about 85, 88% support within his own party, then, you know, it's not in Republicans' interest to vote to remove the president. Probably uh, the flip side is it's more in their interest to to support the president. So, yeah, why, why are the Democrats doing it to appeal to their base? You know, and arguably, as a national community, that is not the better angels of our nature. Um, That's intense partisanship. So it's one one side versus one side, and it's kind of like a gladiator fight to the death. So Americans are less concerned with the affairs of the nation at the moment than their personal views of uh, the two main political parties and maybe more directly their president. That's a, you know, I'm glad you asked that because the truth is actually that if you ask Americans what's really on their minds, uh, they will tell you health care and the state of the economy. Broadly speaking, the economy is doing well in terms of traditional numbers. But if you ask Americans how they're doing individually, you know, you have a, an income inequality and divide that is uh, very troublesome. They want immigration reform. Um, there's a whole, they, they want, cli- uh, you know, uh, addressing climate change. But again, the country is split on those issues. But I wouldn't say under any circumstances, uh, and, and polling shows this, that impeachment is the number one issue that they, they care about. I'm going to go back to when you said the attitude is like something that's not been seen since the time of the Civil War. Mm. Are we talking about people in the United States actually physically confronting one another over this, over the unease or the, the, the anger in the greater community? Yes. You know, not necessarily shooting each yeah, other. Yeah, no, I hear you. There's some there. There is violent rhetoric. There's a technology, obviously, that didn't exist a few years ago, let alone a hundred and some odd years ago, that um, that aggravates uh, the situation, worsens the situation. I mean, to the point, you know, where Twitter is not going to take U.S. political ads, and there's buzz today that uh, that Facebook may very well do the same because, um, you know, that genie is out of the bottle and it's very hard to put the genie back in. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's breaking relationships. It's busting up neighborhoods. This is, a, th- th- this is not a good situation. No, no, we can see that clearly. Politically. Uh, the country's doing okay. Folks are doing fine. You, you know, you have a heart attack in the middle of a street and you're going to get a bunch of people coming out to help you and they're not going to ask you you know any political litmus test and the american people are good mm-hmm. and they're fine but the politics really uh stinks right now john i always appreciate the time you give us thank you so much thank you really uh, we, we learn a lot talk to you. keep calling right thanks now, john zogby he's uh world famous for the uh, zogby poll and uh, the author of We Are Many, We Are One, John Zogby on the Word Future. Here's a story that's gotten a lot of response on Twitter after I tweeted out. We're going to be talking with our great friend Scott Newark about it. Two Ottawa area women who were actively grooming two teenage girls for sex trafficking were spared a prison sentence by a judge. The girls were plied with liquor and drugs and had already been exposed to sexual activity by adult men. The judge declared 
about committing the women pimps to the mandatory five years in prison, quote, such a sentence would be outrage, an outrage to the standards of decency. And he uh, opined that the general public in Canada would be outraged if he made such a decision. Scott Newark is a former Alberta prosecutor. He's a professor at Simon Fraser University. And I know that you have a strong opinion about this one, Scott. What about this judge? Yeah, that's um, more what my uh, concern is about this case. Uh, you know, I mean, the uh, the circumstances are always relevant in a, uh, uh, a case for uh, sentencing. Um, and this is, you know, the the they got these two young girls, and they got them uh, plied up with booze and drugs and everything else, and they were they got them uh, changed into sexy clothes, and they were literally in the process of getting them ready to do more. They brought in a bunch of men, um, and they essentially, uh, when the girls weren't behaving the way that the uh, the pimps wanted them to, they essentially uh, threatened them, and fortunately. One of the girls uh, actually had a contact with the Ottawa police and they was able to contact them, and the police came and uh, rescued them. So in other words, uh, the actual exploitation was limited in time, uh, and the, uh, uh, the negative impact on these kids uh, was less than it otherwise might have been. That doesn't change, however, the, uh, the nature of what it is that these uh, two pimps were doing and it's important to appreciate that, um, you know, uh, Parliament has made the laws. The people we elect actually uh, make the laws, and they specifically uh, created this as a uh, unique offense for human trafficking, uh, for involving people under the age of 18, precisely because it was a growing problem. And as has been the case, uh, they actually balance the different interests that courts do, you know, every day between deterrence and denunciation and rehabilitation, and they came up with this mandatory minimum sentence. Now, as you and I have discussed over the years, I am not a fan, uh, generally, of mandatory minimum sentences because I believe that the genius of our justice system is its ability to deal with this offender, this offense. But having said that, the arrogance of this judge in simply saying, well, you know, um, I'm not going to follow uh, what the rule of law is. I will just make my own uh, decision and I will ignore what Parliament has done because, you know, as you, as you rightly pointed out in the, uh, the quotes about him, that, you know, oh, the public would be outraged about it and, it, you know, it would be so um, egregious if they were actually uh, sent to jail. I believe they, uh, in fairness, I believe they, uh, both of them had spent some pretrial custody. But the thing for me that, that really jumps out, Roy, is that this is yet again another example of a judge literally refusing to follow the rule of law because Parliament is the uh, entity on behalf of Canadians that elected them that actually makes the laws. And... You know, look, if this guy has that strong opinions about that uh, motion, then you know what? Put down your gavel and your paycheck and run for office. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, in the minute and a half we have left here, did, does he have the, the, the leeway to make this decision? Well, unfortunately, um, you know, the, uh, our courts have, in individual circumstances, in effect, allowed for judges to make these kinds of uh, rulings. But look, we've had mandatory minimum sentences, I can tell you, you know, for like 40, 50 years, okay? It's a circumstance where Parliament, in, and they have been increasing, in fairness, they have been increasing. But, uh, you know, that's been something that has been part of our justice system, part of our rule of law, and this judicial activism that I think is growing and spreading in this country is now manifesting itself including in cases uh, like this. Right. The other side of this that is really disturbing is, in my opinion, there will be absolutely no accountability for this judge. And that should not be the case. Judicial independence is important, but so is accountability, yep. and they should not be irreconcilable concepts. These were kids. These two were kids. Yeah, and 15 if the, years old. And if this judge has the feeling that Canadians 
would be outraged if he sent the pimps who were sexually exploiting them, sexually trafficking them. The Canadians would be outraged if he sent them to prison for five years. This judge needs to get out and talk to people and really should put down his gavel and take yeah, a hike. Well, read between the lines. He's, it, it really isn't Canadians that are outraged. It's uh, uh, his lordship who is uh, outraged by it, and he thinks that good that's good enough and to hell right. with the rule of law. Scott, thanks for the time. Always. Okay, Roy. Thanks. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney. Well, Canadians would be outraged. There's a lot of activity on that on Twitter. My Twitter account is at the Roy Green Show. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.